All right, so we are back in Acts, and it's been a while since we've been in Acts. We took some time off for Christmas and for New Year's, and we did our hymn sing last week. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I just put another notification in the app today. So April seventh is our next one. So. April. Yeah. Too far. Sorry. We planned them quarterly. So. Yeah. Once a quarter. That's what we're starting off with. So April and then July and whatever's after that. October. So. Um, since it's been so long since we've been in Acts, we need to do some review. So, I figured we would do some Acts trivia to do some review. Yeah, it's that's a nice way of saying a pop quiz where I get to ask. Yeah, open book. We'll allow it. All right, so who is the central figure in the book of Acts? Paul, Paul, Jesus, God. Still haven't got it. Still haven't got it. No. The church. The Holy Spirit. There you go, Shar. Glad you're not in nursery tonight. <laughs> Different person, same being. All right. And the two human central figures in Acts would be? Uh, yeah, Jesus is more important than the other. He's in the beginning, but... Who takes up more space? Paul and Peter. Peter. Yeah, the first dozen or so chapters are about Peter. All right, and who is the author of Luke? Who's the author of Acts? That's what I meant. I'm allowed to ask who the author of Luke is. That's relevant, right? <laughs> Thanks, babe. <laughs> You're doing so good. All right, who's the author of Acts? No, it's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's Luke. <laughs> Luke is a human author. <laughs> you guys make fun of me for asking the wrong questions, so. All right, and the recipient of both Luke and Acts would be who's the recipient? Who is Luke writing to? What'd you say, Jim? Uh, yeah, who specifically? Yeah, let's turn back to there we go. Yeah, verse one. It says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And in Luke, I think he calls him most excellent Theophilus. So he's writing to Theophilus and, yes, to other believers and everybody, really, but specifically to Theophilus. Um, next. All right, Miss Diana, quote us a verse from the book of Acts. Anyone, your choice. Um, um, and they prayed and said, You Lord. That's not quoting. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody know a verse from Acts that can quote us? Say it, 
Louder, sir. What? Say it louder. And each door was in power that the Holy Ghost was come upon you, and you should be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the earth. All right. Yeah. Old King James. Yeah? <laughs> awesome. All right. Now, in chapter 3, there was a beggar who was healed. Who healed the beggar? Yeah. Who healed him? It was a beggar who was lame. Yeah, yeah. Holy Spirit, we'll stick with that. That is the central theme of Acts, right? And by what human hands? What was that? Peter and and John. Yeah, and then they were locked up shortly after, remember? Yeah. You did say kill, right? Oh, heal. Heal. I said kill. I'm going with I remember. No. <laughs> they killed what? <laughs> Not allowed to ask for money, huh? No, nobody killed the beggar. They healed the beggar. <laughs> All right. And in Acts, we read about um, the, the role that would eventually become deacons and how that's established. What chapter does that take place in? About the first deacons, or yeah, in chapter six, yeah, and Stephen, and he was one less seven, yeah, in chapter seven he was martyred. Good job. All right, we're we're doing good. Um, chapter five was. Are you quizzing me now? <laughs> That's Ananias and Sapphira, right? And they. Uh, maybe not. No, this is funner when I quiz you. That one's a good one for the the deity of the Holy Spirit, though, because that's where Luke says, "Well, you didn't lie to to man, but you lied to God." And a couple verses later, you didn't lie to man, you lied to the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the best proof text for the Holy Spirit being divine. Um, who sent out Paul and Silas as missionaries? Yes, the Holy Spirit. And what church sent out Paul and Silas? What? Church of Christ. <laughs> uh, no, not quite. Yeah, it was Antioch. And again, you're right in saying it was the Holy Spirit. So that's Acts 13. Um, says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to do. So, yes, the Holy Spirit and the Church at Antioch is the ones who sent out Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. All right, and now, speaking about somebody being killed, who is the only person who's mentioned as being killed by Saul? Uh, maybe. So in Acts 22 4, Paul.
Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. But, yeah, he didn't actually kill Stephen. But, in a sense, he did kill somebody, like you said. That's what it was, yeah. yeah, we haven't got there yet. This took place last time we were in Acts. Again, it was about a month ago, but it was in Acts chapter 20. So by this time, he wasn't Saul any longer. He was Paul. Well, depending. Yeah, the boy that fell out of the window because Paul was preaching too long. <laughs> yeah. His name was Eutychus. <laughs> it says, And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell from the third floor and was picked up dead. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one way to go. Huh? All right, well. Yeah, he went down. His life is still in him, right? <laughs> yeah. A couple things wrong with him when he's falling three stories, huh? Alright, well let's pray and we'll get into our text. God, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that you carried men along as they wrote the the book of Acts. We thank you for Luke and for his diligent study and for his investigation. We thank you for Paul and his faithful ministry and pray that we would be able to imitate that and that we would be just as bold and faithful and courageous and that we would have an impact in this city, in this county, in this state, like the Holy Spirit had 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and Antioch and all throughout Asia and into Europe. God, we thank you for um, that same Holy Spirit who, who leads and guides us now and pray that you would Teach us as we open up your word and uh, help us to draw closer to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. I can't help myself. I've got a couple more. So, <laughs> the first convert in Europe. Who was that? Female. Yeah. In Europe. Yeah. Lydia. Lydia of Thyatira. And, yeah, she was into purple goods, right? Um Anybody know the first convert in Asia? I would be surprised if you guys got this one. The first convert in Asia. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> no. So where do we read about Lydia? Do you remember what chapter she's in? A little bit earlier. She's in Acts 16. We read about Lydia. 16. Yep. And it's kind of cool that over in Romans 16, we read about the first convert in Asia. So Romans 16 and verse 5 says, Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinatus, <laughs> my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. So... I don't know. <laughs> You're so mean, Joe. Epinatus or something. He was a first convert from Asia, so that's his claim to fame, which is pretty cool. But yeah, Acts 16 for Europe and Romans 16 for that guy from Asia. That says 
Mine said the same thing. I just didn't pronounce it correctly. <laughs> so yes, that's who who it was. All right. Um, let's see. Let's look in chapter twenty and. I'm going to pick up in verse 16. We're just going to jump around a little bit and kind of remind ourselves of what Paul is doing and what he had been doing. So in verse 16 it says, For Paul had decided to sell past Ephesus. Remember that he has spent more time in Ephesus than any other city. Here's another trivia for you. Like three, three and a half years he was in Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. So, uh, going into chapter 21, that's kind of his goal, his objective. He wants to get to Jerusalem. Um, going down a little bit farther. In 22, so chapter 20, verse 22 says, And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So, that's pretty cool. He says he's on his way to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit has told him in every city that what awaits him there? Yeah, bonds and afflictions, chains. So he knows what he's in for. Uh, this was a couple chapters ago that he shaved his head. And coming up later in 21, uh, he's going to get into that. But we'll get into that a little bit next week. Um, but yeah, even so, he said he considers his life of no account. But he is focused. He has this goal in mind. He's a, a minister of the gospel, and he wants to press forward preaching the gospel. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so he, again, he knows what he's getting himself into, and he is committed. He is not going to turn back. He says, you're not going to see my face again. Um, these people that he, he loves and he cherishes. And then he says that my, my conscience isn't bound, that I didn't shrink back at all from preaching to you the gospel. I gave you the full counsel of God. And what a, what a testimony. I mean, I don't know if anybody can say that with, with good conscience today, um, but the Apostle Paul sure could, that he didn't shrink back at all from preaching to them the gospel. Um. Will somebody read for us our, our text today? We're going to try to get from verse 1 to through 16 of chapter 21. Will somebody read 21, 1 through 16 for us? Okay. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Petra. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload for cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there for seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. 
When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied, accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Barnabas <coughs> came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. <coughs> now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord being done be done. And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with him brought with them a certain man what was A certain man sounds good to me. Manasseh of Cyprus an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Alright. Thank you. Alright. So going back to the beginning right off the bat it says when we had parted from them and set sail. Who is the we and who is the them in that verse? They departed from them, believers and us. Yeah, so they were leaving these faithful fellow believers, again, that he had spent much time with. And remember, he didn't actually stop in Ephesus. He stopped in Miletus, and he called for the elders of Ephesus because he needed to make it to Jerusalem. So he wanted to make it a quick trip, but he still wanted to touch base with the elders. So he had the elders come and meet him at Miletus. Um, so that way he wasn't as held back and um, constrained to stick around for a little while, but he still was able to touch base with them. But yeah, he departed from the believers at Ephesus, and who's included in that we? Yeah, Luke. So several times throughout Acts we see um, Luke talks in a, a plural sense. He includes himself with Paul and his travelers, so that's Luke included there too. So they parted out from the believers of Ephesus and they set sail and ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. So these places that Paul's going to now are not places where he's been to plant churches, but there are believers there and they're there because partly um, of his persecution. So again, in a roundabout way, he has influenced the, the church in, in this region. Over in Acts 11, verse 19, we read about these regions and how they came to, to know Christ. So again, Acts 11:19 says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, and again, like you said, Rex, uh, Paul, Saul, he was there. He was part of that. So they made their way to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and to Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews only. And so, oh, going on, it says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
So through the persecution of Paul and the events surrounding Stephen, uh, the church was scattered. Now, remember, like you quoted uh, Acts 1.8, they were to go out into all the world, right? Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And they weren't doing that initially, so it was persecution that spread them out. Um, and they finally got out and they got going. They went to these regions and they told the Jews about Christ and then others came along and they were telling the Gentiles about Christ too. And so these areas that Paul's going to now, again, he's not been there to plant these churches, but indirectly he had a part in their coming to know the Lord. Verse 3 says, When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, so they sailed down to the south of Cyprus, a big island, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And so they seem to have switched ships halfway through and got on this bigger um, ship that can go out onto the ocean, a, a seafaring ship that carried a bunch of cargo. They landed in Tyre and got it all unloaded. And then while it was unloading, um, verse 4 says, After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So Paul lands here in Tyre, and what is the first thing that he does? Verse 4. Yeah, he looks up the disciples. He wants to know where are the Christians at, where are my brothers at. Let me go hang out with them and encourage them and uh, touch base with them. Tell them what God is doing where I've been and find out what he's been doing here. And so he touches base with these disciples, hangs out with them for seven days. And three times in this passage, we see that um, Paul is warned not to go to Jerusalem. Now, we already know from chapter 20 and coming into this, that that's his goal, right? He has his mind set on going to Jerusalem. He wants to take them some money. He wants to encourage the church there and build them up and strengthen them. That's what is on his mind. That's what's on his heart. But these believers, these disciples here in verse 4, are telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And then kind of jumping forward a little bit, but down in verse 10, it says, as we were going through there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and he gave him a, a prophecy and pretty much told him, don't go into Jerusalem. And then again in verse 12, says, when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So it seems like everybody is trying to warn Paul. You got the believers here in um, Tyre and um, in verse 12 and verse 10, you got Agabus, and they're saying, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Just stay here with us. Stay where it's safe. So what's what's going on here? Is Paul disobeying God because they were telling him by the Holy Spirit? Or is the Holy Spirit giving different revelation to, to Paul as he is to these other people? What do we think is is happening here? How do we reconcile what's going on? Okay. They were saying, don't go, don't go. <laughs> yeah? Well, doesn't it say that they said in the Spirit, so wouldn't that be the Holy Spirit saying not to go? It kind of reads like that, doesn't it? 
that they were telling him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem, verse 4. But I think that, that Jim is right, that the Holy Spirit didn't say not to go, but the Holy Spirit told them what was going to happen, and they kind of interpreted that you shouldn't go. And so as we'll get on into um, this, this prophecy from Agabus, and even here we see that, yeah, they had some kind of revelation from the Holy Spirit, and the revelation was right, but the interpretation of the revelation was not so right. So they took that revelation, they took it a step further, realizing, having been shown by the Holy Spirit, that Paul was going to face persecution, he's going to face chains and imprisonment in Jerusalem, they decided that, based on that, that it was best for him not to go. And I know that we can do that all too often, right? That we no doubt come up with the wrong interpretation of something um, more often than we even know. I'm sure that we're all wrong in, in some respect where we don't even realize it, and one day we're going to know our, our blind spots and where we're wrong. But these guys took that interpretation a little bit too far, it seems. That's at least my understanding of where it says, through the Holy Spirit, they were telling him. So it was revealed to them that he was going to face persecution, and then they took it a step farther in saying that he should not go because of that. Because we see, um, remember back right before he got to Thyatira to meet with Lydia, in chapter 16, um, verse 6, it says that they passed through Phrygia and Galatia, the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So Paul here, he was prevented from going into all these places by the Holy Spirit, and he yielded. He submitted to the Holy Spirit each time. He didn't try to um, disobey the Holy Spirit, so it doesn't make sense that he would disobey the Holy Spirit here in verse or chapter 21. Um, and then later on, this man from Macedonia gets a vision, says, come on over to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to go and preach the gospel to Macedonia. They went and they obeyed the Holy Spirit in that. So Paul isn't one to just flippantly decide, well, I'm not going to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do whatever I want, right? Um, and in fact, we just read back in chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, that the Holy Spirit had already given revelation to Paul that he should go to Jerusalem. So this isn't just something that he came up with on his own, but he was guided by the Holy Spirit. And now being bound by the Spirit, and that could be a lowercase spirit, that could be his own personal spirit. Um, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit, now that's obvious, right? That's blatant Holy Spirit, solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So he knows what's to await him in Jerusalem, but he also has clear revelation that he is to go to Jerusalem. Um, and now he's having these other people tell him, well, don't go to Jerusalem. Um, just a couple other verses to maybe put your mind at ease and help you realize that he wasn't being disobedient because, like you said, Britt, when you first read that, when they're telling him through the Spirit not to set foot into Jerusalem, it could seem like he's disobeying the Spirit. But in 23 verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. And he says a similar thing in... 
24.6. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. Um, maybe it's before that. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us your kindness and brief hearing. I don't know, somewhere in that passage, he says something to the same effect, that he didn't um, go against his, against his conscience in in anything, but in all things that he was fully submissive to to God. Um, so yeah, seems to me like they just misinterpreted and took that a step farther than maybe they should have. Oh, that what it was? This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God. All right. Both before God and before men. Yeah, so with that being the, the character and the heart of Paul, um, surely he's not disobeying the Holy Spirit. But I think rather than prohibiting him from going into Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit is preparing him for going into Jerusalem. So warning him and just letting him know you need to count the cost because it's not going to be easy. You're going to get there and you're going to get bound up and it's going to be difficult. Um, you're going to face change. You're going to face persecution. Paul says, yeah, I'm I'm ready. That's what I signed up for, right? Um, he is a, a sold-out disciple and apostle of the Lord and from the day he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, I think he was ready to lay down his life. Paul didn't completely understood because he said, Yeah, but he was prepared to. He was thinking that he was ready to. Yeah, it was 2022. I'm on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that bonds and afflictions await me. Maybe that's the one you were thinking of. Other thoughts on verse 4 or any of that? All right, verse 5. When our days there were ended, we left and we started our journey. While they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. So again, this wasn't a church that he had planted. seems like he was just meeting these guys for the first time, um, spent seven days with them, and now it says... The, all of them, with their wives and their children, they came out and they escorted him out of the city. They knelt down with him and they prayed with him and said farewell. So it's just kind of a, a sweet time, a sweet moment, fellowship between believers. It's always nice when you meet a believer, even if you've never met him before. You go to a city and you meet somebody, you you have that bond with that that unity through Christ. And you can see that here with Paul and these these believers that were, were praying with him and sending him off. Then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home again. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. So, he's just kind of bouncing from house to house, right? And um, here, after they left Tyre and arrived at Ptolemais, um, 
It says they greeted the brethren, and they stayed with them for a day. They just hung out with them for a day, and they went on to Caesarea, where they met Philip the Evangelist. And where did we see Philip the Evangelist before? Sent down the desert to talk to the eunuch. Yeah. Yep, same guy in chapter 8. He was one of the seven in chapter 6, one of those uh, deacons or the the precursors to deacons. Um, he was in chapter 8, before he went down to the Ethiopian eunuch, he was ministering to the, the Samaritans. Um, so he and Paul were kind of like-minded, kind of going outside of the box a little bit, just like Jesus did, remember, in John 4, he went to the Samaritans, and everybody kind of freaked out. Well, what are you doing going there? You know, why Why do we have to go through Samaria? And even the Samaritan woman herself, she was kind of taken back. Why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Um, they were the, the half-breeds. They weren't the, the full Jews. And Philip was out there ministering to them. And uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, I think, is probably the first Gentile convert in the book of Acts from Ethiopia and um, it wasn't uh, common for eunuchs to be in the temple. They weren't welcome to worship in the temple. He didn't know what he was reading in the book of Isaiah, so it doesn't seem like he was a Jew. Mm-hmm. And Philip was out there ministering to him and led him to the Lord. And he said, hey, there's some water. Let me go be baptized. What stopped me from being baptized right now? So Philip really seems like he and Paul are, are kindred spirits. And they both have a heart for the lost and for going out and reaching out into areas that... Um, are different and unique and new um, going out to the Gentile people. Well, Philip, that was, he was evangelizing Jews at that point before he got sent to the desert? Um, well, he was in Samaria, some, yeah, Samaria before. So, yep. Yeah, so he was up um, talking, hanging out with the half-breeds and ministering to them. And he actually had a, a relatively fruitful ministry with them. Um because some would ask, why in the world, just as great as he was doing there, just up and send him off down the highway to... Uh, the yeah, church. yeah, he was having a fruitful ministry there. Um, let's see, verse 6, I'll start there. This is chapter 8. It said, The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. And in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Um, Then it goes on, talks about Simon for a little bit. Um, Verse 12 maybe says, But when they believed Philip, Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And then it goes on to Simon and his whole asking to buy the power of the Holy Spirit and all that. After Philip disappeared when he ended up baptizing the uh, eunuch. And yeah. He just, just vanished and yeah, teleported. Yeah, did say where he showed back up again? Um, yeah, it's later. <laughs> Not Hollywood, but um, let's see. It's going to be down... When they came up out of the water, verse 39, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> so he's just whistling down the road, not really caring. Just <laughs> That dude disappeared, but I've, I've been baptized. I know Christ, so he was good, right? Uh, verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, 
No idea where that's at. Find it in a map, I guess. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So there's our connection. Um, and here in verse 8, on the next day we left and came to Caesarea. So Philip was likely possibly there since he was teleported there. He figured, the Holy Spirit brought me here. This must be where I'm supposed to stay. So he hung out in Caesarea. And Go talk to him about that first time I see him. You know? I got a question for you, Phil. How was, how was that teleportation? Did you get a headache? <laughs> Did you get a headache? Yeah. Man, I go too fast in a car or something, <laughs> merry-go-round, but teleporting like that. Hmm. All right, so verse 8. On the next day we left and we came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man, that's Philip, had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Now that's kind of out of place. Um, it's just kind of random. He happened to have four virgin daughters, young women who were prophetesses. Um, bonjour, me and more. That is going away. Sorry. It's not bonjour. <laughs> what is it? Say it in French. I'm not French. Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what is the difference between a prophet and... An apostle. Jess. <laughs> Bernice <laughs> throwing you out there. Well, an apostle has seen Christ or been part of the yeah. relationship. What about in review to Revelation specifically? Yeah, you're right. To be an apostle, you had to have seen Christ and been with him from the baptism of John up until the resurrection, which is why Paul says, well, I'm one untimely born. Not that he's not an apostle, but he doesn't fit the status quo of an apostle. But as far as re revelation goes, how do uh, prophets and apostles relate to revelation? What are they revealing to people that they're ministering to? God's word is direct. What he's proclaiming to the people. Both of them? Mm. Apostles already revealed. This thing that's already been revealed. And people and prophets getting a new revelation. Kind of. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, we'll go with this. So, primarily, an apostle deals. This marker is not that good. Um, deals with doctrinal revelation. So, when we're told that men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit as he, as they wrote. That's speaking of apostles who are writing, or men who are closely related with the apostles. And they're revealing doctrinally, this is what the Lord says, thus saith the Lord. Whereas prophets more primarily deal with um, practical revelation. What is going to happen? Um, and how do we prepare for... Uh, what's to come for the, the future of what's to come. Um, also, prophets have two aspects of their ministry. Any ideas what those might be? Start with. <laughs> um, the way that I remember starts with foretelling. 
foretelling and forth um, so foretelling is to um, let people know what is to come, what's going to happen. And foretelling is to proclaim truth that has already been revealed. So two aspects, um, foretelling and forthtelling. And so in some respects, some people will still say that we have prophets today um, and we don't in a biblical sense. But we do have people who foretell. We're all called to foretell, to go out and to preach the word and to um, take that same commission that these guys had in Acts 1-8 and apply it to our circumstances, to our culture today, and to preach the word in Payson and Utah County and uh, Utah and to the other ends of the earth. But that doesn't make us prophets in that biblical sense of the word. Some of the studies I've been through, they say... The person with the gift of prophecy usually sees things in <coughs> either it's a sin or it's not a sin. There's no grace for compared to the person with mercy or whatever. They're always like, well, you know, that's yeah. not so bad. <laughs> so what a lot of people do when they try to apply this to modern day is they take and they redefine uh, a biblically defined prophet and say, oh, well, we still have prophets, but then they put a different definition on that same label, which I don't think is really helpful. So but it's listed as one of the gifts. Yeah. Probably as one of the gifts. Yeah. Well so is speaking in tongues and healing and um, we are cessationists here and we've had non cessationists come here, but um, in our doctrinal statement we are cessationists. You guys know what that word means? Kind of a big word, right? Cessationist. Stopped. <laughs> stopped. Oh, it stopped. Sorry. Cessation means stop. Let's try to figure out what you said. Yeah, and that's in contrast stop. to. Did you tire? Stop tire. Yeah. So that's in contrast to continuationists. So continuationists think that the gifts have continued, the radical gifts have continued on into present day. Whereas cessationists think they've ceased, they've stopped. Uh, those radical gifts of the Spirit were for a certain purpose at a certain time to uh, show people of the apostolic authority that the Holy Spirit had empowered them with so that they could know, okay, well, this man is sent from God. But after the church was established, um, we think that those gifts have ceased. But Philip had four young daughters who were prophetesses. And if we understand them to be prophetesses and the fact that they were forthtelling, that could be somewhat problematic because Paul has said in numerous other places that a woman isn't to have authority over men. She's not to teach men. So if these four young women are forthtelling, then that could be an issue. If they're foretelling the, the future, that makes a lot easier to explain what they were doing as um, these four prophetesses in the New Testament. Um, an interesting point from um, from history is that Papias, who lived in the first or second century, he said that um, these four daughters of Philip were informants <coughs> on church history, that they 
told people about church history and um, gave information on how the early church started, which is interesting. They could have actually spoken with Luke and informed him on this text that we're looking at today. Remember that Luke was a, a careful, studied historian who went out and um, studied all these things so that he could write this letter to Theophilus. And so while he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit, he still went out and he was searching and he was discovering. He was um, an investigator. And these four ladies could have aided him in his investigation, which we're not told explicitly in Scripture, but that's what one of the early church fathers leads us to believe, which is kind of interesting. All right, going on to verse 10. It says, As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down to Judea. Now, an interesting thing. Remember that Philip was in Caesarea. Caesarea is actually inside of Judea. So it's kind of like Caesarea is to Judea what Payson is to Utah County. So to say that um, somebody came down from Utah County to Payson kind of sounds awkward, um, but that's in effect what he's saying, that he came down from Judea to Caesarea, but Caesarea was so Greek in its culture that it was seen as completely outside of Judea, even though it was part of Judea. It was kind of the, the heathen realm that they didn't really associate with, so it was spoken of as being a different place. But this prophet Agabus came down to Judea. Uh, remember, we saw Agabus for a little bit back in Acts 11. He's the one who came and said that there was going to be a famine. Um, and there he was called a prophet. Um, that prophets came down to warn them of a famine and that he spoke by the Holy Spirit. So his um, prophetic office was verified back in chapter 11. And it says here that Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said this is what the Holy Spirit says in this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles so again he's being warned he was already warned when he first got there um, at Tyre they said don't go into Jerusalem they said by the Spirit again and now Agabus is saying they're gonna they're gonna bind you up Paul um, they're going to bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And then when we heard this, we as well as local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is a, a favorite verse for a lot of um, these continuationists to point to. People who think that these sign gifts still apply. New Apostolic Reformation, um, people who are in the... Um, the radical apostolic movement and they'll say well this actually wasn't a prophecy that was fulfilled 100% there it was close but it didn't actually get fulfilled in the way that um, the Agabus said that it would and so it's okay to give prophecies that are kind of vague in nature that kind of have the gist of what what we're getting at and not be exact um, which is scary and really, this is the only person that they can point to in all of Scripture that can even kind of be twisted to say that there were some ways in which it wasn't fulfilled exactly as he said that it would be. But it was. And so I'm going to show you um, what happened in the fulfillment of this. And then we're going to 
I'm going to read off some notes here from an article that I read earlier. So jump with me down to verse 30. And so down in verse 30, by this time, he had already made it to Jerusalem. And we're going to see uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy that Agabus just gave. Then all the city was provoked. And the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now these were Jews who were rushing him and uh, taking hold of him. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. And so the way that the continuationists will play this story out is they'll say, well, it wasn't the Jews who bound him. It was the Romans who bound him. He wasn't bound with a belt. He was bound with two chains. And the Romans weren't handed him by the Jews. The Jews didn't hand him over to the Romans. And so they'll say, yeah, it was kind of a prophecy but not really it wasn't fulfilled in the way that it should have been so it's okay to have falsified prophecies um, well I had been reading this article by Nathan Buznitz he's um, out at MacArthur's church and does a lot of stuff with him um, his article that he wrote in 2015 is titled throwing prophecy under the Agabus so <laughs> kind of clever um, and in it, he notes that men like D.A. Carson and Wayne Grudem, which you guys may know and uh, be familiar with, um, will affirm this, that he wasn't, uh, that he was a prophet, but his prophecy wasn't fulfilled to the letter of the law. And he notes five reasons why this can't be true. He says that nothing states in the text that he got his prophecy wrong. That's important that if the Bible doesn't tell us this prophecy was an error, then we should not look for any reason to think that it was an error. The Bible doesn't say that it was wrong. Uh, it just goes on and tells a story. What kind of um, writing is Acts? you guys remember? How would we classify it? It's not poetry, right? It's not prophecy. Yeah, it's historic narrative. So it's writing a story, telling us history, giving us what happened. Um, and that's exactly what it does. And it doesn't tell us that his prophecy was wrong. The second reason he gives is that Luke's description implies that the Jews bound him in some way. And so in the description in going back up to verse 27, it says that when seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and they laid hands on him. So they laid hands on him. Verse 30 says that they seized him. And again in verse 30, says that they dragged him out. Um, and then again in Acts 26, Paul gives the same stories. He's talking to uh, Festus, and he uses these same kind of terms, these same words, seize and, and drag. And they, um, Buznet says that they would have had to restrain him in some way as they forcibly removed him from the temple, using whatever was immediately available to bind him. So they had to take him out of the temple, the Jews did, after they seized him, after they dragged him out. And so we have no reason to doubt what Agabus said, that they were going to take and they were going to bind him with a belt, just like Agabus did, saying, the man who owns this belt, 
wouldn't that be weird? Like, Agabus shows up and he tells Paul, like, hey, give me your belt. And Paul did. So he took off his belt and he gave it to this guy. And then this guy starts to wrap up his arms and his legs. And at this point, if I was Paul, I'd be wondering, what is he doing with my belt? <laughs> and he says, well, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt. And we have no reason to doubt that that account, that record. Uh, the third reason that Buznitz gives why this prophecy was fulfilled is that Paul's later testimony confirms that the Jews delivered him over to the Romans. So Acts 28, 16, and 17. And again, when Paul is giving a historic account of what took place in Jerusalem. So Acts 28, 16, and 17. Paul says, when we entered Rome, oh, is this Luke? Yeah, Luke. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began to say to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our father, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So, seems like these these Jewish people who were beating him in the temple, who were dragging him out, who had seized him, had to have seized him some way. We have no reason to doubt that they did so in accordance with Agabus's prophecy, and they handed him over to the Romans, according to Paul's own testimony in Acts 28. Uh, fourth reason Buznitz gives is that Agabus is quoting the Holy Spirit. So it says in uh, 21, what is that, verse 12? Uh, 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound it. He says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. So he's quoting the Holy Spirit. Um, and not only that, but the Holy Spirit is the one who is, again, carrying along Luke as he's writing this. So the Holy Spirit wanted this in here, just as it is, without any qualification, without saying, well, that's not really what I told him to say. That's the way that the Holy Spirit had Luke write it. And then fifthly, no one in church history accused Agabus of errant prophecy until modern times. So the early church fathers didn't talk about Agabus often, but whenever they did, they equated him with the Old Testament prophets and said, yeah, he's, he's a prophet just like those Old Testament prophets. And it's not until people needed a reason to have prophecies that weren't to the letter that they went and they found this story of Agabus and uh, they said, well, that's an error. But again, if you dig in and you look at it, it makes perfect sense to believe that it took place just as Agabus said that the Jews bound Paul and then handed him over to the Romans. The Romans also bound him with two chains. Thoughts or questions on any of that? All right. Yeah, it's something, again, you might run into people pointing to Agabus and even people around here, the Latter-day Saints, because they have prophets who say one thing one day and the prophet who comes down and will counteract what the other prophet said. Is that okay? Um, it's possible that you might run into somebody who says, well, look at Agabus. He said he'd be bound with a belt and by the, by the Jews, but it was the Romans who bound him with chains. So you just have to dig in and look at the cross references in chapter 26 and chapter 28 and 
trust scripture that it is true and we can take it to the bank all right um you know you'd have to go back and see what it says in the greek but he's saying so shall the jews at jerusalem buy this man it's not really saying they'll do it with the belt he's just saying he'll be bound and turned over yeah and i don't know how precise it would be wasn't he just saying that the belt Referring to the belt of being the owner of this belt, not that he yeah, would be bound owner. with the belt, but he would be bound if he was. Yeah. But the owner of the belt, which is Paul. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And um, when in Acts 28:17, when Paul's giving that account, he says, "I was handed over to the Jews." It's the same Greek word that is used in 21:11 by Agabus that says that this is what the Holy Spirit says and. This way the Jews will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So that word deliver him is the same word that Paul uses when he says, I was delivered over into the hands of the Romans while I was at Jerusalem. So, yeah, it's people just making a stretch. Yes? Is there any prophet in the word of God whose prophecies did not, are not, or were not fulfilled? certainly not any true prophet because Deuteronomy 13 and 18 says if there's a prophet leads us after a different God he's a false prophet or if there's a prophet that prophesies and doesn't come to pass he's a false prophet um, so you can find an example of false prophets um, I can't think of any off the top of my head but not a true prophet no. but yeah, if you read most of it especially if you read Isaiah and Jeremiah a lot of that stuff is um, Museum, it's, it's not exactly. It, it's a, a vision. Imagery. Of, yeah, it's just a, he, he's, he's saying what's going to happen, but he's using a vision that's not exact. Yeah, yeah, like Ezekiel laying on his side or burning his hair and doing all kinds of weird stuff, and uh, it's representative of what's going to happen to to Israel, and it's symbolic, but it's meant to be symbolic. All right, real quick in uh, 13, Paul answered, um, saying, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? So again, three times they're saying, Don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. He's already been told by the Holy Spirit, already come to grips with it in his heart, that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He says, For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he he would not be persuaded... We fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. And then get this, in verse 15, it says, After these days, we got ready, and we started on our way up to Jerusalem. So, not only did they concede and say, Okay, well, you want to go to Jerusalem, you can go to Jerusalem. But they actually went with him to Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen, knowing that he was going to be beat, he was going to be bound. They were likely to get caught up in it. Um, having these people in Tyre warn him, having Agabus, his prophet, come and warn him, um, and having such fear and love for their brother, they're not wanting him to go, but they realize, no, he's he's bound and determined. He's going. We're going to go with him. Um, and even in verse 16, some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manison of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So 
not only people he had come there with, but he picked up new disciples in Caesarea, these same ones who feared for him, these same ones who didn't want him to go. And he had such a bold courage about him that they decided, we're going to go with him. We're going to follow this guy into battle, this loving, compassionate, bold guy who preaches the gospel unapologetically, and we're going to go with him. And they ended up going into Jerusalem, and we don't know what happened to them, but uh, just to see that change of heart is encouraging. It's pretty cool. Any thoughts or questions on the first 16 verses of Acts 21? We'll jump back in next week and see what God has for us. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for your word. We pray for those who aren't here. Pray for those who are hurting, who are suffering, who are confused. Um, Pray that you would help us to be the body of Christ to them, that we would show them love like you've shown us love, that we would take up each other's burdens that we would be suffering alongside of them as one part of the body suffers we should all suffer together god help us to uh to be love to to one another god i pray that you would give us paul's heart his steadfast love his willingness to do whatever it takes to spread the gospel to do whatever it takes to follow where you lead god help us to be soft and willing to to listen and follow where you lead and that we wouldn't be worried about tomorrow that we wouldn't be caught up in the troubles of this life but we would be willing to to lay it all down for you to do whatever it takes to honor you in the way that you've called us to that we would do uh, what you have for us that we would live a life that um, is worthy of the calling you've called us to I pray this in your name amen Thank mm-hmm.